This is Phantom Power. Episode 14, Resonant Graves. What I'm interested in now is to see what the waves that are traveling through the wood are like. And those are the things that I think are making a lot of difference in the way energy and the waves of energy can go through the wood itself. And wood is all sorts of sort of discontinuities, if you will, that will make the energy have to slow down or go around something. It's a little bit like a river flowing. And if you put some rocks on the edge of a river, you'll change the whole flow of the river downstream. I think that's what's happening in violins. There are certain ways that those blockages, the discontinuities, can be worked out. And that's the kind of thing I'm looking for, is to see what happens. Because some of the beautiful old instruments that I've been working with and testing show that there's a good deal of this sort of thing going on. Well, let's, let's just back up a little bit. There's a, a, line of, uh, a line of thought, which is that every object vibrates according to its nature. Welcome to another episode of Phantom Power. I'm Mac Haygood. And I'm Chris Cheek. Today, we have the pleasure to speak with one of our collaborators, Craig Ely. Craig is a producer on Phantom Power, and he's also the producer of his own podcast, a podcast called Field Noise. Hi, Craig. Hey guys. Hey, thanks hi, for having Craig. Me. Yeah, thanks for being with us. All right, so Craig, we're doing a little bit of a swaparoo this week. We're going to hear uh, basically an episode of your podcast, Field Noise. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your show? Yeah, you know, the idea has always revolved around my own research interests uh, sound studies, history of technology, environmental history, and just this sort of relationship between sound and technology and the environment. You know, when I finished graduate school, I actually, I did do a research postdoc for a year, but then I ended up working in public radio, and I'm trying to incorporate some of my own research, but also just, you know, do some original reporting and just kind of follow my, my ears, as it were, uh, for some stories that I'm, that I'm interested in trying to tell. So today you're bringing us an episode of Field Noise that uh, is about an outsider who revolutionized the field that she entered. That's absolutely right. Uh, this is a story about a woman named Carlene Hutchins. She wasn't exactly self-taught as a violin maker, but in some ways she was an amateur who entered this field. Uh, she was a school teacher. She was very intellectually curious. And she drew on this old technique of vibrating plates. These are called Clodney patterns from this guy Ernst Clodney. And she applied that technique to violin making. This work starts in the 1940s and into the 1950s. And the results frankly, turn the entire violin world upside down. So um, I, let me just say up front, uh, Max said, you can either listen to it in advance or it might be interesting if you don't. I have no idea what you've done. Great. So, so this is going to, so I'm kind of like your very weird listener. 
Yeah, 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 that's great. Well, you know what? It's the more I listen to it, I think it's like a totally weird piece. So maybe between the three of us, we can try to make some sense out of it. She was at a point in her career where she had a chance to take on about five jobs. And this is the way she told it to me, that she could have had. But she realized that she couldn't stay married in that, in that time in the 19, late 1920s, 30s, she couldn't have that domestic life too and do these jobs. So there was a frustration, there was a tension always building in her. So who are we hearing right now, Craig? Quincy Whitney. She became Carlene's biographer and published a biography on Carlene. And before that, she was an arts journalist for the Boston Globe. So she's sort of our guide through this episode. She, she teaches, when she's teaching at the Brerley School for the first time, she finds out that her colleagues like chamber music and they're all playing stringed instruments. And so she, they invite her to come to a session one night and she's a trumpet player from college, right? She, she studies the trumpet and she brings her trumpet. And after one session, they, of course, all turn to her and say, you know, the trumpet's too loud for a Manhattan apartment. We really need a viola. As every string ensemble always needs a viola. And so she goes out and, and buys a $75 viola because she largely wants community, right? She's, she's tense about the fact that she can't do what she wants to do. And so the viola, playing the viola with this chamber music group and her friends, that becomes her community. Eventually, she, it sort of sits in her hand, and she's been carving wood since she was five years old. She was a master woodcarver by the time she was in high school. So she keeps looking at this viola thinking, gee, maybe I could make one. Well, actually, I've been interested in wood and loved it ever since I can remember. I learned a lot about woodcraft, which has given me a feel for the trees and the woods and how they relate. This can be used for the half of the top of a violin. And the piece we, other piece we had is, well, this will be one half of it. Here's the other half. And this will make the top of a viola when it's put together. Now there are a couple of knots in here and the plan is to try to work around those knots so that they won't make trouble. And so she made this viola and she's showing it around to her chamber music friends and they're playing it. And Helen Rice says, we really ought to go meet Frederick Saunders. He's a retired Harvard physicist who lives out in western Massachusetts near my farm. We really ought to go, and he ought to just look at your instrument. So she does that. She hands him the instrument. Saunders takes it, plays it, taps it, looks at it closely, and turns to her and says, this is really a great first instrument. I'll be fascinated to see your next one. And at that point, she had not planned to make another one. And so Saunders hands her a couple copies of his um, scientific articles that he's done about violin acoustics, primarily in his retirement as a sort of a passion that he's following because he's an avid string player. So he's written up some papers. They've been published. And now he hands his reprints to Carlene. She's never, you know, she's a biologist. She's reading these papers written by a physicist. And she's thinking, you know, I didn't really understand the jargon at that point. And so she said, but the one thing I do notice, Dr. Saunders, is that most of the experiments you've been doing are putting the weight on the top of a bridge and testing it in a sound chamber. 
And he said, well, yes, because I, as a passionate person who loves the instrument, I don't want to ruin the instrument. And she said, well, what would you do if, if somebody could make you instruments that were expendable, that could be used in, in experiments? And he said, well, that sounds really rather crazy. Like what luthier would be crazy enough to make instruments that they're going to be destroyed? And she says, I will. She ends up doing her research by reading about Felix Savar and what he does with suggesting about plate tuning. And so she's the first person who sort of puts together this idea of doing the Cladney patterns. Ernst Cladney had developed this, this method of seeing sound by putting particles on a plate and vibrating and discovering that there are all these amazing geometric patterns at different frequencies. This is great, Craig. I'm really enjoying just listening and fascinated by the idea of making instruments to effectively damage or destroy, but in the cause of experimentation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's this is sort of the beginning of the sense we get of really just how radical her approach to this is going to be. She, I mean, she's she's a woodworker first, right? Right. And so she doesn't really have a sort of reverence for the violin as a violin, right? Mm-hmm. To her, it, it's this is a wood carving project. And then when she meets this this guy Saunders, it becomes it becomes a science project. And and you know, she went to Cornell. Um, I think got a little taste of acoustics, but also it's just sort of a taste of the scientific method. Yeah. Um, and, and that really, really influenced her approach to violins. Yeah, she's an intermediary. She's got one foot in each of two different worlds. She's got a foot in the world of music and she's got a foot in the world of the scientific method. Um, it actually reminds me of someone that I've done research on, which is Amar Bose. Um, the inventor of the noise-canceling headphones and a lot of the familiar Bose products. He was an amateur violinist, a passionate amateur violinist, and also an engineer. And, and it was having a foot in each one of those worlds that allowed him to be such an innovator. Yeah. What's great about Carlene, too, is that kind of depending on who you ask, it's like she had a foot in both worlds, but more like she actually had like a toe in them. (laughs) Yeah. She really was enthusiastic, you know, more than anything. I mean, her experiences as a violin builder and a player were very minimal. Her experiences as a scientist were, were undergraduate. Uh, you know, that was her, her terminal degree. Um, and so like, not only is she just very interested in both of these fields, but she's approaching them with like almost a, like none of the hangups of being a professional in them. You know, there's something interesting here about somebody who is investing in the, the sound of the material itself, not necessarily how the construction of the material produces other sounds. Yes. A violin plate is very lively. To touch it, this guy has described it to me, it's like it's almost like you're holding a little tiny xylophone. Like you can touch it in all these little places and hear it resonate. Right. Um and so there is, you know, she didn't totally invent the, this notion of, oh, let's, let's think about how the plates sound. I mean, there is a history of 
violin makers doing this sort of tapping and being interested in its own sound as a sort of you know what 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 little secrets can those taps reveal to us yeah sure yeah absolutely i mean she has a real keen i feel like this is sort of a sound studies phrase that that is popular right now but she has a real keen sense of the materiality of sound right oh and i love that this connects to those fascinating vibrational patterns in sand invented by Kladney. Mr. Kladney. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, that's a great segue because the next section here that we're about to listen to goes back in time to tell us a little bit about Kladney. I did a Skype interview with a really great historian of science named Miles Jackson who has a book about this stuff called Harmonious Triads. Can you just take a minute or two for someone who's a total layperson and describe what he was doing in these experiments? Right. So the experiments that that Kalani's interested in, he gets the the idea of doing this by reading the work of a rather famous physicist at the time, experimental natural philosopher called Georg Christian Lichtenberg. And what Lichtenberg did was literally to render the invisible visible, but in this case, electric sparks. So he was interested in looking at kind of the characteristic patterns. You see, you can see sparks, but you don't see the patterns that they leave behind. So that if a spark jumps over a non-conducting material, and if you sprinkle powder in that area of the non-conducting material, if it's from a positively charged conductor, you'll see like a really beautiful star tree pattern. And if it's a negatively charged conductor, the powder will form actually a cloud formation. And Claudine was fascinated by this and reckoned, and it turns out correctly, that you know maybe vibrations in the form of sound would leave similar patterns. So what he's interested in doing is to render these vibrations visible as well as audible at the same time. So he takes a metallic square plate, puts it on a stand, uh, sprinkles grains of sand on the plate, and then he takes a bow and then he bows the plate perpendicular to one of the edges. And he also places his fingers on various portions of the plate. He takes the, the he bows with his right hand and, and touches the plate with his left in order to influence the way in which the plate vibrates. So what he does is he generates these amazing figures, quite aesthetically pleasing figures, but he's interested really in seeing what the actual patterns are and how that corresponds to pitch. Because he's first and foremost interested in, in inventing you know, musical instruments, which he does, and his argument is where the, where the dust settles, where you have those clodney lines, that's where there are no vibrations. Right, that's where the plate is at zero. The vibrations of the plate cancel each other out. Kalani's interested in the bits of, of a metal plate that's not vibrating with the view of locating that bit so that you could put a, a piece of metal or a piece of glass or a piece of wood and you wouldn't change the volume or the, or the pitch uh, of, of the instrument. Okay, so these Claudney patterns, they're these beautiful sort of geometric shapes that uh, are made in sand when a plate vibrates beneath the sand, right? Yep. And I, 
they're kind of hard to describe. Some of them look sort of like a, a kind of mandala or or a, a kind of some kind of cryptic symbol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they look kind yeah, of they're mystical. Like, like the, yeah, they're they're kind of like haunting. I mean, and actually, people talk about this when they were first sort of revealed to people. There was this, you know, this sort of you know late 1700s well is it is it a language from beyond the grave you know it's like it's like this oh. sound and, and the dead thing again um but yeah i mean what what's happening there is that as the plate vibrates as they sort of explain the the sand settles in the areas of the plate that aren't vibrating and this is so fascinating because we think of the sound wave as the natural representation of sound the natural visual representation of sound today right like anytime you look on the internet um you know whether it's soundcloud or if you're working in an audio editor we always get this waveform and and if you ask somebody what is that this thing on this on the screen they'll just say oh well that's sound um but that is not the only you know visual manifestation of sound and in fact Claudney came first. The sound wave comes from the experiments of another German, Hermann von Helmholtz, and he was the one who took a tuning fork and hooked up the tuning fork to a stylus and put a kind of piece of paper beneath it and moved the paper and those vibrations of the tuning fork were sort of traced in this linear, you know, left to right manner that we think of as the sound wave today. Um, and so we just think of that as being sound. And yet I kind of like to imagine a world in which these beautiful Claudney patterns would be our way of interacting with sound and conceiving of it. It's, it's radically different. Yeah. And it's, yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing is like then as now you can't help but be drawn to them. They feel artful and they feel kind of organic. They feel true to, I think, what we know about sound, which is it, that's, it's this really kind of complex thing that's just vibrating all around us. Yeah, you like me, just it just gives you this cool feeling. It, it tells you something that the waveform doesn't quite tell you. All right, somebody make me a Claudney pattern audio editor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but let's get back to Carlene Hutchins and how she applied Claudney's technique. So then she thought, well, well, what happens if we, if we try that on a violin plate? So now she's looking at this really unusual shape, which is the shape of a violin plate. Already you've got an hourglass shape with a waist and the, and the top and the, and the bottom, and it's all curved and serpentine. And then she says, well, what happens if you put the glitter on the plate and then vibrate it? What happens? So she starts to, by focusing on particular modes, particular sound patterns at a certain frequency, she starts to see patterns that basically help her figure out where the plate is too thick. You know, she's got 10 plates she's working on. There's This plate's not got that perfect shape with the glitter. So I guess I need to you know, carve it more in that spot. So she starts to use them to tune them in the sense that she's really having a visual aid to see about the arching of the plate, how to make her uniform arching of the plate and make it work. It becomes a visual tool for the luthier to see what he's doing. 
That kind of innovation is what she discovers that the luthiers hate her because she's asking them to bring science into the workshop. You know, and even though music has been a science since the beginning of time, they have basically done things intuitively with their hands and they're not interested in the science. The next section includes interviews with two really renowned violin makers. One of them is Joseph Curtin, and the other is a guy named Sam Zygmuntovich. Initially, I was pretty skeptical about science, you know, sort of butting into violin making. But when I met Carlene, I was very impressed by her energy and enthusiasm. And I think I heard her give a talk at a conference, and and that was what led to uh, me inviting her to give this, this workshop. What plate tuning was intended to solve, I think from her point of view, was given a vast variety of wood that you, that you find as violin wood, how do, you, how do you optimize it for a given instrument? And you know, there's a notion that um, you can tune it to some ideal um, frequency and, and that should do the trick. Typically violin makers you know, feel the stiffness of the wood, they bend in various ways and use normal workshop practice to, to arrive at graduations. There's no evidence that the old Italians or anyone else really had done plate tuning, um, or not non-scientists anyway. Um, but she was proposing a practical system um, for use in the workshop, and as such, it was very appealing. You know, there was a, a famous cover of Scientific American in the 80s, which showed a, a number of photographs of violin tops and backs with the, um, uh, the vibration patterns revealed through, uh, there was little bits of glitter or tea leaves, and the violins had been vibrated and the, the tea leaves bounced off the areas where it was vibrating and settled in the areas where it wasn't vibrating. And Carlene had done demonstrations of that on a few different frequencies and there was this very striking cover. And you know, I think that that was the first time that many people had that view of the instrument. And it was like, whoa, this is more like, a, you know, it's a Mr. Science project. It's not a Renaissance artist project. So um, the fact that you could see these vibration patterns, and you could tune them, meant that that's what people were focusing on. The thing is, she left out how heavy the plates were. And if you don't, if you don't know how dense the, the wood is, then tuning the plates to get some ideal frequency can lead to counterintuitive results. She also had got caught up with this notion of tuning in octaves which is sort of a seductive notion that, you know, the proportion of an octave, you know, goes back to the sort of the music of the spheres um, type of thinking, but there is really no scientific basis in that. So I think she got a little off, uh, a little astray with that. She, she claims to have measured a, the plates of a, a Strad violin and found that it was in octaves, at least two octaves. And um, I, I don't doubt that that exists, it, it, it happens, they tend to arrive naturally with normal graduations in the area of an octave, but there's two problems. One is, if it is an octave, does that make any difference to the final sound? And the second, why would it? I mean, you know, look, you've got to actually establish a causal connection before you try and convince violin makers to use it. But she kind of skipped that step as far as I can tell. You know, as soon as people could see the pattern on the top and back with the tea leaves, they thought, 
okay, well, uh, you know, um, look look at a few good violins, and we think the top should be tuned to, uh, um, you know, uh, 360, and then uh, it should be half of that for mode two, and then mode one should be half of that again. And if all three are lined up, that was a, an idea, tritone tuning, which meant there was, a, there was all in octaves, and people really worked to get that, and you can get it. Turns out that, that good violins in general are not tuned in tritones, but it was a very satisfying idea. So um, a lot of people spent a lot of time doing tritone tuning. And I'm sure a lot of them got very nice results too. However, if you do a broad study of old violins, it's not what you see. In fact, there's, you know, the tuning of the, the top and the back is just one of a hundred factors and not necessarily the most important one. You know, the project that I was involved with, uh, Strad 3D, was the first attempt to capture the vibration patterns of Strads and Guarneri's in 3D. So you could see how much it was moving forward and backwards and side to side. And then to create animations that you could see for any given note or every, any given frequency, you could see in what way the violin was vibrating. And one of the things about the violin, which is when you actually see all these patterns, which is totally uh, unexpected, is the, the violin is not vibrating in one way it is vibrating in a hundred different ways, all simultaneously, or many of them simultaneously. So it's like a horse is galloping, and on the horse is the saddle, and on the saddle is a person, and on the person is a fly. And they're all doing things at the same time, and we're all moving, and the earth is spinning, and it's all moving through the universe. It's, a, you know, it's almost that level of complexity for a violin. Everything's happening at the same time. So it's quite difficult to tease out single motions. But you know, the implication is clear that the very tantalizing promise for a maker is that if you could see the structure, then you'd have a shot at changing the structure. And if you could change the structure, you could change the sound. So that was a real switch. You know, the, the, the romance of the violin is sort of built around the idea that there's this object that's been designed by man, but almost by with divine intervention. And it works in ways that we don't understand. And we can't even do it nowadays as sort of the mythology. It involves some lost knowledge. And then it, it is a, a very romantic vision and, and, not, and uh, one that I enjoy as well. However, if you are a composer, you don't want to hear that Beethoven's the only guy who can compose. And if you're a violin maker, you don't want to hear that Stradivari is the only guy who can make violins. You know, to move from that to a vision of the violin as a, a a thing, an object made out of real materials, very much like they had back in the old days, behaving in the same way and obeying the same physical laws. It's very empowering. So, I mean, I think the ability to use the scientific findings is still, you know, a work in progress. But just the knowledge that, that it is a potentially knowable phenomenon was a huge one. There's this notion, wildly popular around the world, that science somehow is not up to discovering the mystery of Stradivari. There's sort of an archetypal announcer saying, you know, for centuries scientists have struggled in vain to discover the secrets of Stradivari. Really? In vain? Why in vain? Have you read any of the papers? There's actually fantastic work done. What, what, was, what was never done and could have been done is to do blind tests and see if there really was a difference between Stradivari and any other instrument sound. Um, so before you want to invent a theory about why a certain phenomena is the case, you want to make sure that it's it exists. And no one really bothered to do that until the last few years when we started doing double blind tests. 
We got first in Indianapolis and in Paris. We got in Paris we had ten violin soloists and six old Italian violins, five of them strads and six new instruments, and had the soloists blind test them. And it turned out that the soloist, the most preferred violin easily was a new violin. The least preferred was a strad. And we did the same thing with audience. The audiences found the new ones projected better. And and the subsequent test in New York showed that they also preferred new, um, they preferred what projected better. So there was absolutely no evidence that the strads had any qualities that even first-rate players could detect. Oh yeah, none of them could tell the difference between new and old that better than chance. So it was a big, kind of a big anticlimax. And it got a lot of publicity and there's probably people who still don't believe it, but it's, it's pretty hard science. Um, I don't know, but what else can we learn? Um, (laughs) That's a very iconoclastic finding. Um, Either violin making has got a lot better in recent decades, and or there was never such a big difference as the public imagination has supposed. I think there's been a big advance because A, there's a market, there's a you know, huge number of violinists and very few old violins left and not many of those are, are very good. So as soon as you have a market, then you, you can actually earn a living making a violin now. You couldn't really in past decades, you know, you had to do repairs and restoration. So there's that. Then there's the crucial thing, which I think Carlene Hutchins helped with, which was sharing of information. The traditional European guild system held things very private. So as soon as you get sharing and a bunch of people doing things, things are, are going to get better. I mean, violin makers, professional violin makers would look at her and say, well, she's really a scientist. And I think some scientists would look at her and say, ah, well, she's really a a violin maker. <laughs> uh, um, but but I think everyone, at least certainly the scientists I've talked to who know it, you know, would, would absolutely credit her with, uh, in a major way with, you know, getting the field going in America at the time. So there goes the antique violin market. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or does it? Because this is the thing. It was all about the mystique, apparently. Right. The object it has value regardless of how it sounds. Yeah. I mean, that. I think, I think that's the question, right? I think that's the question that these new makers are asking is, do these violins actually sound better? Or is it just the mythology of them that we that has become so deeply ingrained in violin playing culture and in violin making culture and styles and tastes change and and a certain kind of uh sonic palette is going to be preferred in one moment compared to the next i mean there could even be the influence that uh recording technology right you know digital recording technology reveals a lot more high frequencies yeah. that people have gotten used mm-hmm, to hearing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and people might start to want a violin that can repre- reproduce those frequencies more or less you know yeah, yeah yeah and there's this other interesting question that people raise and like the the obvious way is like well what is a new instrument today going to sound like in 300 years right one of the things that i really liked was you know, talking about this Claudney technique and because it revealed a certain propensity of the instrument or a certain dimension of the instrument, uh, people really zeroed in on that and thought that that was the key to making an instrument sound good. And then what, what one of your experts shares with us is like, well, no, that's just one of a hundred things that the, the instrument is doing in any moment. 
totally. Uh, you know, you can kind of read between the lines when when these luthiers say things like, well, that ideal was appealing or that ideal was seductive. And, you know, what they're sort of getting at here, and in some cases say explicitly, is, you know, what that ideal was is for a lot of people it felt like a shortcut. And, right. and so for people who are invested, you know, for example, in what Joe Curtin calls normal workshop practice at one point, that's also a little bit of a code there, right? As saying like, well, you know, those of us who have studied this and have apprenticed and sort of come up in the traditional way, you know, we, 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 we weren't as willing to take this shortcut maybe, um, or, or, or we were skeptical about it from the beginning. Yeah, because on the one hand, you have people saying that, look, science will cut through the mystique and reveal the true essence of what's going on with an instrument. And yet science has its own mystique, right? We have a way of, of, of grabbing onto something precisely because the aura of science is around it. Right. And, and, and we kind of, and, and I'm not belittling the scientific method. I think it's amazing, but whatever we zero in on where that means that we're leaving something else in the periphery of our vision. I think, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think this was a moment where, you know, this sort of, the the old myth of the Strad, right? Like, well, well it's unlocked, you know, it's solved now and we have science. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that idea took a little bit of hold in the, in the 1980s. But I think what, uh, what you know, Joe Curtin and Sam Zygmuntovich are kind of telling us is that the science, the science moved on. And that is actually the important part of Carlene's work. It's not that the science was perfect, but it's that she published her work. It's that she published her findings. She did experiments. She got violin makers in a room talking to each other. And so whether or not the science was right is actually not the important part of her contribution to violin making. And I think that the fact that, you know, you and I can have this conversation and that, you know, luthiers are willing to talk to me publicly about their craft, that's a radically, you know, new concept from the guild method, right? I mean, these guys would study in their workshops for, you know, untold years on end and guard their work like, you know, the se- like the secret that it was. And so, you know, the fact that we're now running double blind tests on violinists and audiences, that's, that's Carlene's work. It's, it's not the plate tuning. So, Craig, we're coming to the conclusion of our story here, but we really haven't addressed the theme that's sort of been, you know, lurking in the background this entire time, which is Hutchins was a woman, a school teacher back in the 1950s and 60s when she revolutionizes violin making in America. I mean, gender must come into play here, right? I mean, it's critical to the story. It's fundamental to how this whole thing unfolded, how her ideas developed. Because, you know, it's not just that she was an outsider as a violin maker or an outsider as a scientist. She was also outside both of those fields on a sort of deeper, more fundamental level as a woman. You know, there's this notion that the violin makers don't want science kind of budding into their 
to their workshop practices. But I think that underlying all of that is this often unspoken thing, which is like, well, who is this woman and why does she think she can tell us what to do? Yeah. Hmm. You know, the other important role of gender in Carlene's life is that she makes this decision early on to be a school teacher as opposed to being more of a career woman. Um, she makes her violins in the context of of basically staying at home for large portions of her life. She's She has the summers off as a teacher. She raises several kids at home. Um, and her home is also where her workshop is. They're, they're one and the same thing. So her practice from the very beginning is a practice that is um, you know, sort of prescribed by her her gender roles in the 1950s and 1960s. And so her embrace of this sort of open violin culture from the be- very beginning is I also think about a woman seeking out community in a professional and intellectual space uh, where she doesn't often get to experience that in her everyday life. Her legacy is nothing short of overturning the violin world in several different ways. I think if Carlene had been a man, she would have been coronated for her field. Carlene opened the door and started a dialogue. Suddenly, there was not the secrecy of sentries and people guarding their work. Well, I don't know if a man had come along, would he have had the same inclusive paradigm? I don't know. And whether it was gender only, her paradigm was to be open and to share. And I have to say that there wasn't that paradigm before. She would want the science to move on. She was open to the dialogue. You know, she did it. She did everything. She wore every hat you could possibly wear in her field. You know, author, catalyst, editor. She did it all and transformed the whole the whole climate. And that's it for this episode and this season of Phantom Power. A quick programming note then. After doing two seven-episode seasons, we're going to switch to dropping episodes as soon as they're done. Look for the first one in your feed this summer. Thanks to Craig Ely for being on the show. You can hear the original version of Craig's piece by subscribing to the Field Noise podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And you can learn more at fieldnoise.com. As always, you can learn more about Phantom Power and find transcripts and links to the things we talked about including those beautiful Clagney patterns. It's all at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, we'd love it if you'd rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. That does make a big difference. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. Today's show was edited by Craig Ely and Mac Haggard. Music was by Blue Dot Sessions, except for the piece you're hearing now, which is courtesy of Mark Bianchi. The archival interview clips of Carlene Hutchins were provided by filmmaker James Schneider. The interview with Quincy Whitney was recorded by Andrew Parella at New Hampshire Public Radio. Thanks to our Season 2 intern, Gina Moravec. Phantom Power is produced with support from the Robert H. and Nancy J. Blaney Endowment, the Miami University Humanities Center, 
and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Being a luthier of violins. Derived from the word lute. A, a, originally a lute maker. Oh, really? That's where the word comes from? That's right. <laughs> wow, that's that's so Renaissance Festival. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've got my little furry tail already. <laughs> <laughs> that is another whole topic, like... How did cosplay become something that you see at the Renaissance Festival? I, don't, I totally don't get it. Right, Next well, season three, Phantom Power. <laughs> furries, I've even yeah. seen furries at the Renaissance Fair. I'm like, people yeah. are jousting and there's like a giant mascot sitting next to me. Mm -hmm. We're not going there. <laughs>